the rosebuds know the bloom in early May. Just as hate knows love's a cure, you can rest your mind assured that I'll be loving you always. Cause now I can't reveal the mystery of tomorrow, but in passing we'll grow old in every day. Just as all that's born is new, you know what I say is true. Hey, hey, welcome to Call Prairie Inside Out. This is episode five. And you're probably wondering why we would start the podcast with for the church with a song from Stevie Wonder. But uh, I would contest that there's really never a bad time to play Stevie Wonder. Never. Never a bad time. So uh, I'm Sean Simpson. I am the tech guy here and uh, the host of the podcast. And alongside me is Brian Thompson, our worship director. Brian Thompson, worship director. Yep. Brian Thompson needs to get closer to his mic. Hey, all right. All right. <laughs> okay, so let me start by uh, with, a, with a little bit of a thing. So this is going to be a little bit of a different uh, show than we've, than we've been doing. Uh, so let me start with uh, the thoughts and opinions that you're going to hear expressed during this show are mine and Brian's alone. Um, so in fine broadcast fashion, here's the disclaimer. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts may not reflect those of Call Prairie, its congregants, partners, or, or any other entity except for those behind the microphone. Viewer discretion is advised. Your mileage may vary and consult a physician if symptoms persist. Uh, and they are all Pastor Dan's quotes and ideas. I'm just kidding. Don't don't throw that on him. <laughs> <laughs> right. So let's get back to uh, to Stevie Wonder and uh, what we're playing there. So this song uh, it's called "I'll Be Loving You Always." Stevie Wonder is uh, I believe it's 1978 is when it uh, when it came out. That recording that you just heard is actually from uh, from just a few years ago, a live performance. And uh, this song was actually brought up by uh, Dallas Police Chief David Brown. Um, and uh, Chief David Brown, he's an African-American man, and he presides over one of the largest police forces in the country. Uh, and now he's kind of in the national spotlight because it happens to be the center of what was one of the largest police massacres in history, um, a massacre against police officers. So the national dialogue has, has centered for a long time, actually, for, for years now, has been centering on the violence of police officers against minorities. Uh, the names of victims get spread across the screen, and uh, and there are you've got half the people with a, with the victim who are still trying to slap handcuffs on them, and the other half that's trying to anoint them with sainthood. When in reality, the the person is probably just somewhere in the middle, uh, as as is often the case. But most reasonable people do kind of stand in the middle, somewhere between horrified. <laughs> by these tragedies and completely confused. Um, what happened last week with Philando Castile up in uh, Minnesota and Alton Sterling down in Louisiana, those, those were pretty horrifying things. And they were made even more horrifying by the fact that there was such graphic video. So it really touched a lot of people to see that. Now, Chief Brown, who, uh, again, he's the police chief of, of Dallas, uh, he had the what I would consider to be an unenviable task of delivering a message to uh, to the people at the memorial service. Uh, and actually, he was introducing President Obama at the end of it, uh, who was going to speak and deliver a, a more concise eulogy. Right. Um, but, but Chief Brown, he could have gotten up there 
And I mean, this is a man who's who's in charge of this large police force that suffered such a tragedy. And he could have gotten on the stage and condemned. He could have gotten up there and condemned the the man who took the lives of five of his officers. He could have condemned and villainized a society and a system that produced that person. But instead, he, he did something very different. He invoked love. That's what that's that's why this song came up. He opens up with the story of how he was a lovesick teenager and he had no skills at getting a date. And then what he would do is instead of trying to use his own words, he would use song lyrics. And uh, his, his kind of comedy point in it is he says, for girls that he just liked, he would go with some Al Green, some Teddy Pendergrass, some Isley Brothers. Nice. Yeah, nice. But for the girls he really liked, he would go for Stevie Wonder. And so this is a place where he basically, he invokes love for the people who are left behind, love for the people who were lost, and love for the people who were left behind. So let me play a little bit of uh, Chief Brown's statements here. So today, I'm going to pull out some Stevie Wonder for these families. So families, close your eyes and just imagine me back in 1974 with an afro and some bell bottoms and wide collar. We all know sometimes life's hate and troubles can make you wish you were born in another time and place. But you can bet your lifetimes that and twice as double that God knew exactly where he wanted you to be placed. So make sure when you say you're not in it, but not of it, you're not helping to make this earth a place sometimes called hell. Change your words into truth and then change that truth into love. And maybe your children's grandchildren and their great-great-grandchildren will tell them, I'll be loving you. I'll be loving you until the day that is the day that are no more. I'll be loving you until the day the earth starts turning right to left. I'll be loving you until the earth, just for the sun, denies itself. I'll be loving you until Mother Nature says her work is through. I'll be loving you until the day that you are me and I am you. Now, ain't that loving you? <laughs> and there's no greater love than this, that these five men gave their lives for all of us. Now, that's a familiar sentiment. We, <laughs> we use that around the church a lot. Uh, these five men gave their lives for all of us. We use that very, that practically that very verbiage, and I'm pretty sure he's probably heard this, and that may be one of the reasons it flowed so easily. But we, we would say that he laid down his life for all of us, speaking of, of course, Jesus and the sacrifice on the cross and the, and the New Testament and, uh, I mean, the new covenant and, and salvation that came with it. So it's a, it's a very uh, biblical <laughs> reference that he's making. And it's, uh, it's no wonder 
that he's kind of captivated the national attention at this point because he's he's very eloquent in the way that he speaks. He's very uh, very um, connectable. It's very easy to to listen to him speak and say right. and say I share that. I I get that. So I mean, there's so many times that he's talking to that you're just wow. That yes. Yeah, he could have a career as a as a spoken word poet. Oh my gosh. <laughs> just reciting Stevie Wonder lyrics. Yeah. So there was an earlier press conference though that actually that really catapulted him into the national spotlight. Um, and in, in this press conference, he uh, you know he he's invoking love, and that's pretty much what he does all the time. Is it seems to be that he's a very much a let's let's deal with the uh, let, let's deal with the root of the problem and not deal with the symptom of the problem. Uh, so it's a little difficult to hear uh, what's asked, but the gist of it is he's been discussing his his own life growing up in Dallas, growing up in the area, and then going off to college and then coming home and what he saw of his of his community um, yeah. as a as a young African-American man in the 80s when there was a whole new crop of designer drugs hitting the hitting the streets. And so this is just following that. And he has asked, um, well, what is your advice or what do you say for uh, for young men? Become a part of the solution. Serve your community. Don't be a part of the problem. We're hiring. We're hiring. Uh, get off that protest line and, and, and put an application in. And we'll put you in your neighborhood and he- we will help you resolve some of the problems you're protesting about. Yeah, so he pretty much knocked it out of the park there as far as sound bites because he threw something out there that I don't think anybody can argue is a, a bad recommendation, but it's also a recommendation that I think that every side can embrace. Uh, that, you know, go be part of a solution, quit, you know, protesting has its place for sure, but ultimately you have to leave the protest line and go be part of the solution, not just the person bringing attention to the problem. Um, although that may be the phase we're in now, it's just he's sort of pointing to here's what the next phase is. And this also kind of sounds familiar because in, you know, we saw this in the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and John, they refer to uh, they all recount the story of Jesus calling Simon and Andrew to get off their boat. Mm-hmm. They were fishermen. Get off your boat and join me. And uh, so it's kind of an interesting thing. It's kind of the, uh, he says, you know, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It's kind of the Chief Brown saying, hey, um, you know, get off the protest line, come follow me and we'll make you cops. And you can be part of the solution instead of being part of the problem, which not that everybody on the protest line is a, is a part of the problem. But um, I'm not saying Chief Brown is Jesus, because certainly uh, that would be, you know, that would be crazy. But the sentiment that he has there definitely resonates. I, I like that sentiment. There, 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 are, uh, there are a couple of ways to look at that. I think that we have, uh, Sean, you and me being in ministry, you know, Pastor Dan, anybody on our staff, but then anybody who has served in any kind of role like that, um, we can all attest to times that it is incredibly frustrating to to see where different people are in the spectrum. We've all known people who are in those roles of ministry that maybe make decisions and they aren't looking at what's in the best interest of people. And so we wonder, you know, why are all these church politics happening? And 
course, that's not here. There are no church politics in Cop Prairie. <laughs> I don't mean. No, and seriously, I don't. Not. I don't mean Cop Prairie in that example. I mean, but but we've all looked at examples like that, and we've all had the conversation. Well, why are we still here? Well, because we want to be that change. We want to be part of the change that happens. That we don't make everything about policy, but we make it about people. And uh, I th- I think that there's a lot of a, a lot of truth in that. I think there's a lot of truth in what. And uh, in what he says and what the chief says um, for, yeah, be part of the solution. And um, but the, um, you know, as he's talking about, you know, leave the protest line and come join. Clearly, protesting has its place and it has its time. I mean, you know, we when we look at, you know, the Civil Rights March and, and Martin Luther King and, and, and the people that came through that that were leading very nonviolent protests and, and going through uh, and making a stand, um, would, we be, would we be here with the good things that have happened and come out of that and the equality that, is, that has happened on a much grander scale had those protests not happened? I mean, you know, you look at, you look at Gandhi and, uh, and, and, and there, you know, overthrowing the British with no violence, but with just simple protest. Uh, and I say simple, like it's very, very thing. These are very nuanced ideas. Sure. But there comes a point in time where um, I think that has its place. I think that has its importance. And then you say, OK, this is something there was a statement that was made. And it, we, we and, and they have every right to make that statement. People have every right to, to make a statement of that. But then it's also it's the. Uh, it's the old Tony Robbins analogy where he, you know, where he says, I don't, I'm not a psychologist. I don't, I'm not interested in as much what the problem is because we could be there all day doing that. But what is the solution? Where do we begin to find the solutions to coming out of this? Yeah, we seem to be, we seem to be as a society, we seem to be really focused on, on what, what is wrong and what caused the wrong and, and not as focused, which granted, sometimes you can't, Sometimes you can't repair something until you know what the cause of it is. Right. But at other times... You can't change what you don't acknowledge. You, you can't change right. what you don't acknowledge. But sometimes it's sometimes it's better to, uh, you know, kind of the, the medical side of it, like in the, you know, in the ER, that you may, you may go in with your arm ripped off, but, and they're going to want to know what happened. But if the person who can speak says, I have no idea what happened to him, they're not going to continue going, well, we can't do anything for him because we don't know what ripped their arm off. What they're going to do is they're going to figure out a way to keep you alive and hopefully save your arm or, you know, or, or whatever it is that they need to do. And we don't really do that in society. So, I, you know, I just want to throw something out. This is just a, this is kind of a challenge and this is kind of a, a thing. And it, it may or may not get me in trouble. It may or may not resonate. But I'll just throw this out there. I'm not a huge fan of, of some stuff. I'm not a huge fan of some of the things that I'm seeing out there. For instance, the this life matters and that life matters and those life, you know, and, and this doesn't and this takes away from that. I'm not a huge fan of those. I, I don't like groupthink philosophy. You know, the groupthink philosophy of um, of it being, you know, us against them, of it being, you know, I'm part of this group and they're part of that group. And therefore, everything I do and everything in my group is good and everything in your group is bad. And I, I don't like that. Um, there's, you know, a little bit of wisdom here from from a movie that I'm going to play here. Well, why, why the big secret? People are smart. They can handle it. The person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. 1,500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was the center of the universe. 500 years ago, everybody knew 
The Earth was flat, and 15 minutes ago, you knew that people were alone on this planet. Imagine what you'll know tomorrow. People are... Oh my gosh, I forgot how brilliant of a movie that is. They're dumb, panicky, and dangerous animals. And that's pretty much summarizes people as a whole. Because people as a whole don't move in unison. People as a whole tend to move in big amorphous blobs. And whenever you get something moving that way, it's hard for it to develop momentum. And if it's not developing momentum except in one direction, what ends up happening is just it fractures and it creates it creates more problems than it solves. And that's how I feel about some of these things. And I'm not talking about I'm not saying I'm not saying Black Lives Matters isn't isn't justifiable and a and a good movement. I'm not saying that all lives matters isn't a justifiable and good movement. Um, but I, I do know that people who are um, kind of in the, the, the BLM side of things tend to really hate the ALM side of things because it takes away from, they say it takes away from the, the point. It's kind of the, I saw a meme on, uh, on the internet the other day and it showed, uh, it showed Jesus saying, blessed are the poor. And somebody down on the ground saying, blessed are all people, Jesus. And it's like, yeah, you know, that does kind of hit home that sometimes you have to, you have to specify what it is that you're trying to address where problems or injustices are happening. And I understand that. What I don't like is I don't like the that, for instance, Black Lives Matters or All Lives Matters or anything. What that doesn't take into account is that you can have a situation. Um, and again, I'm not placing blame. I'm just this is just what I see. And I'm kind of just stream of consciousness talking here. But I see that there may be strength in numbers, but there's hardly ever wisdom in those numbers. There was this guy in Dallas. He was so incensed about what he saw people doing, people being law enforcement officers or, or white people in general. He, he was so mad about that, so angry about that, that he thought the best option was to take a rifle and go and start picking off cops at a rally. Now, none of those cops in Dallas had anything to do with him directly. I mean, other than the fact they were law enforcement. But that was his, his solution because in, in groupthink, he saw that it was them and us. And they are bad and we are good. And therefore, the best thing to do is to start killing them in this in this horrific manner. You know, I'm much more in favor of something along the lines of your life matters. Right. My life matters. Um, You know, not to not to take away from not to take away from the validity of a group of people matter. But the individual, the group has no soul. Right. There, there's no soul to to a group of people. You can't say, you know, you can't say, hey, here's a collection of people who all share one common trait. And that common trait really is the color of their skin for the most part. Um, and maybe a share, maybe some shared experience and say this group has a soul. Right. Those individuals have a soul. Mm-hmm. OK, now just tell you a little story here. Just, you know, a little little quick thing. And that is that, um, you know, I can remember being a kid and how strange it would feel to hear people, I, now I grew up in the deep south. Okay, I grew up down, you know, as as far into Dixie as you can as you can get, literally down next to the Gulf Coast in Mississippi. And I could have sworn I detected a British accent. Really? Yeah, that's uh, you've got a great ear for accents, buddy. So, 
there's a certain level of segregation down there still. Um, not it's not in the schools. It's it's not in anything. But you know, it's very rare for uh, for black people and white people to go to church together. It's it's very rare for black people and white people uh, families to to go out to eat together, for instance. Now, I'm not saying this is good, bad. It's just it just is what it is. It's right. just kind of a sometimes just kind of a natural segregation. But in some cases, it it could very well be a just leftover remnants of the fact that we were steeped in the Confederate flag. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we grew up under it and it was just part of the culture. And you'd hear somebody say something. Okay. Now just imagine it's, it's a group of high school kids, not specifically, you know, saying it was anybody that I knew what it was probably. And you're standing around and the, the area of our town where all of the African-Americans lived um, you know, it, it had a name. Uh, it wasn't a racial name. I just don't want to say what it is. Um, but there was, you know, that part of town um, had a name. Everybody called it that, including the African-Americans. And, you know, you would say, well, all the, you know, all the folks over in, in this area, you know, they, this or that. And it, they were sort of scribing things to people who lived over there, whether it was that they were they were uh, criminals, whether they were, um, you know, not smart, bad drivers. It was dangerous to go over there. I mean, it, whatever it was. And but then you would kind of step back and you would remind them that it's like, yeah, but what about this guy and this right. guy and this guy? You know, we, we all played football and baseball together. And these guys that they were talking about that lived in that area of town, the African-American boys, they played baseball with us. They played football with us. They played under the same helmet that we did. They played under the same flag that we did. They, they wore the same uniform that we did. And this is kind of a microcosm of the country. But you would start saying that and then find that, well, what's actually going to happen is those people a lot of times would just they would start extracting them from their community and, and with the sense of, you know, well, I'm not talking about him. No, he's cool. But those other ones and you're like, wait a second. If you know five people from a population, let's just say it's five and four of them are absolutely great people. You hang out with them. You'll spend time with them. We did. I mean, we played ball with the with right. these guys, but we also were in class with them. We would go to parties with them on the weekends. I mean, it was I mean, now, granted, we may not have gone to church with them on Sunday just because they went to a different church. But if four out of the five people that I met in a community were great people, what reason do I have to think that the that 80 percent I mean, just on that small sample size, what, may, what reason do I have to think that 80% of the people in that group are not equally honorable and, and worthy of my respect and worthy of my friendship? Mm-hmm. I, um, I, I, I come from a, a similar background in that. You, you and I have talked about that. Um, I'm from a little town in, in Florida on the beach, but it is the Alabama part of Florida on the beach, and it's uh, Panama City, Florida. Uh, very, <laughs> lower um, Alabama. Lower Alabama. Uh, beautiful beaches. Uh, I, will give, I will give them some tourist points right there, so go check it out. It's great. Redneck great Riviera. Take there are some rednecks. There are some of that, and, and there was certainly some of that growing up. I, I did not um, – you know, I, my dad was a pastor, and um, – you know, we were very much probably like you. We were very much instilled that you know we we did not, um, we were not proud of racism being a part of that part of the culture at all. I mean, we were very very. Um, my my father very much preached against racism, very much preached against b- a bigotry and and hateful attitudes, and and uh, you know he taught us very very well with that. Um, but it was so ingrained. 
in some of the timing still and some of where we were at as a part of the country. Um, it was primarily uh, there. There were a lot of African Americans, but there were also a lot of white people in the South, and you did tend to have those two groups separated a lot, and they didn't tend to still not do anything. And there were segregated schools and things going back even just a few years, ten years before I came of age, that I was going to some of those schools. So there were some deep, deep pockets where some of that, those attitudes of racism, were still spilling out. Um, and you know what? What we what I found is that those things would even come out in, in slang f- things that we would say to each other, and certain things that we would talk about. That I had no idea were ingrained in just racially. Uh, horrible things that people would say and they were just part of our slang with each other and uh you know it, and, and just certain things that you would say like we you know we, we say things like oh you know i got gypped out of this well those are <laughs> those are all ripped out of uh you know horribly racist things to gypsies right. uh or to uh to other people groups like that and um th- that becomes a part of when that becomes a part of your dialogue and you're talking to people and you realize – I look back now and I realize there were things that I had said to people that later – I had no idea. I was literally cursing this person when I talked to them and I had no idea I was doing that. It beca- there become, And so what, what I mean by that – and that was a long way of saying there become some systematic parts of this racism that do steep into our levels of – public discourse that then into our marketplaces into our into our businesses into our governments and there's a long history of some of that there's obviously some of that that went that was involved in Ferguson and St. Louis and I I know a pe- several people on both sides of that uh that was clearly probably some of that that happened in Dallas although um you know there was a lot of things that were just fueled by other things the we, you know we were talking how the media and I'm not not wanting to jump down the media, but it just tended to fuel this guy's aggression in Dallas. And I know when we were living in St. Louis, we were we were a community away from Ferguson. And that night when they when they gave the uh, when they gave the um, um, deliberations in court on the Michael Brown case with uh, right. and they and they and Darren Wilson was the the police officer. Um, even as they prepared for the district attorney to come out and to give the give the uh the results the news was showing army tanks coming into St. Louis and anyone in their right mind get that off the screen you are exactly. when you build a war zone and this becomes an apocalyptic way to sell news time um that doesn't help things and it just that creates more problems than they're trying to solve and would those things have still happened? I, I don't know, but um, it, I think it could have been highly mitigated because of some of that. Yeah, as a as a journalist or a aspiring journalist, you definitely um, <laughs> we all know the axiom, but we try not to. You try not to use it because it it, it clouds your objectivity. But it really is. It's if it bleeds, it leads, and. Uh, like you pointed out, and we were talking about this earlier, you said, yeah, and it's not even if it bleeds, it leads. It's if it bleeds, we'll have it here first on 
the the news and what that ends up doing is it ends up sometimes i think and not not to cast aspersions because this is a complex problem this is a problem that i i don't have an answer for all i can do is that's why i kind of like the and i'm kind of standing by this your life matters my life matters it it the reason i'm that way is because individually is the only way that i can handle what i see i can work towards treating people with respect i can work towards treating um towards treating groups of people in general when if i encounter groups of people trying to remember that those people that are in that group are individuals those people that are in those groups are the same people right. that i'm you know that i i know that i like i know yeah. that i, I want to you know that i don't want to see any harm come there now i can also uh you know tell you that you know i'm i'm aware that i have the southern accent it's not british Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, not not. Bri- I know it's it's they're they're very similar, um, especially in the in the level of yes intelligence that it conveys. Yes, right. I mean, yeah. a, a, good, a good strong British accent is basically the equivalent of a of a real thick Southern accent. But I'm aware that I have the Southern accent. Uh, you find out that I grew up in South Mississippi. You know, steeped in the Confederate flag, um, played high school sports under the Confederate flag, um, and alongside. You know, I would say at least half my football team was African-American. And, you know, those were my brothers. Those were the guys that I, you know, we we put on the uniform and we went to battle together. Right. Metaphorically, of course, not to not not in real service. So it's probably pretty easy for somebody who doesn't know me um, or maybe people who do know me to see me as a, a guy from Mississippi and immediately think, okay, well, you're stupid. You must be because, I mean, Mississippi always ranks really low in education and always ranks right. really low in any any national standard of of uh, success. Mississippi is either at the bottom of it or maybe even not even on the list. Right. I mean, literally the only the only state we ever had to kick around was uh, was uh, Arkansas because we vacillated between 50th right. and 49th with them on just about everything. Alabama occasionally. Florida always was a little better, but that's because you had not lower Alabama where you were, but you had the southern part of the state yeah. to, uh, to skew Which tend to be much better numbers. in sports, by the way. Yes. Well, there's some pretty good ball I players in that state. area. Yeah, yeah, Florida State, they, they, all, they just all go to Alabama to play. Whoa, oh, hey, hey, hey. whoa. So, uh, but I'm, I'm aware that people, that people can see me like that. So that's why I don't typically lead. Seminole Lives Matter, Sean. Seminole Lives Matter. The, the American, the Native American Seminole Lives? Because, yeah, well, I agree with yeah, that. Yes, the, most assuredly. The, the FSU ones? But the uh, football players as well. Okay, yes. the, the Florida State. All right, my, my sister graduated from Florida State. So I, what I don't want is I, I don't I hope that people who meet me will they see me as an individual because I am from Mississippi. I mean I'm not going to say that I'm like oh man I'm proud I'm a I'm a proud Mississippian. I'm not terrible. I'm not really a proud much of anything. I'm just kind of a yeah. guy who just kind of sure. <laughs> just kind of goes and does. And uh, you know being from Mississippi though it is really easy to have the assumption that the guy that you're dealing with, the guy that you're talking to is some kind of rube. He's some kind of idiot, some kind of, you know, whatever. I just hope that people see me as an individual because it is. It's their life matters to me, and I hope that my life matters to them. And I don't just mean in terms of I'm not going to commit murder, right? and I don't hope that they – I hope that they don't commit murder. I mean, but it goes beyond that. It goes to grace and salvation. Yeah, Um, It goes to – 
the love that we're that we're supposed to give to people. Now, there's another little clip I want to play here, and this one is actually it's it's not a news clip, and it's not really even directly racially uh, connected. Not that this is a whole racial um, racial show, but uh, this ties into it's actually something that just happened uh, very very recently. In fact, last night is where I where I got this. Eric Berry is, um, I know you're not a sports guy, but hopefully you know who Eric Berry is. He is a defensive back for the Kansas City Chiefs. Right. Before that, he was a defensive back for the uh, University of Tennessee Volunteers. And I was in Tennessee for 13 years, and so I knew about Eric Berry then. My father-in-law is a huge Tennessee fan. So, you know, Eric Berry has kind of always had, you know, he's always been known as a great athlete. Well, he was, uh, a couple of years ago, he was diagnosed with cancer, with, uh, I think it was like lymphoma, non-Hodgkin's, something along those lines. Mm-hmm. But in either case, it was uh, uh, devastating. And this is the bit from the ESPYs, which were um, this whatever, Wednesday, so right. la- last night for us. And uh, I just want to play you a little bit of this. This is him accepting, uh, this is the, the ramp-up promotional part, and then him accepting the award for Comeback Player of the Year. Sometimes you feel like you just can't do it no more. You just got to keep fighting. Just because it's a cloudy day don't mean the sun's not shining. It's always going to be light at the end of the tunnel. I survived. Chief Safety Eric Berry has been diagnosed with cancer. Everybody's heart stopped on Monday when it was announced that Eric Berry out for the season prepping for a much bigger fight. I played alone, I played on my own. I survived. I felt like I had to just come back the best way I could. It's a fight. It's a battle every day. He's back. This is America. Barry brings the hammer. A diving interception made. Barry's got it on the pick. What a story. What a season. I'm just excited to be here. I wouldn't change it for the world. Ladies and gentlemen, Eric Berry. Man, first of all, I'd like to thank God, man, just because none of this would be possible. I wouldn't be standing here before you. Um, I also want to thank my parents who are actually here with me, sitting with me, and I'm so thankful that I have some some true ride or dies with me who showed me the true meaning of unconditional love and how important it is in this world, and I'm truly thankful that I can call you guys my parents. Thankful for my brothers who pretty much went against hospital protocol and set in with me on my treatments. Almost got kicked out, but they bucked anyway, and I'm proud of them. But uh, there's so many people that I could thank and give honor to, but uh, I just want to talk to the people that's out there fighting, whatever they're fighting. And there's two words that stood out to me throughout the whole process was honor and legacy, which I got from my big bro, Inc., You honor the ones that come before you, and you leave a legacy for the ones that come behind you. When you fight something like cancer, you're not dealing with a person that overlooks, that looks at where you come from or what's your background, what race you are, what ethnicity or whatever, whatever your culture is, it doesn't care about that. It doesn't sleep, it doesn't get tired, so if you make it about yourself, you're going to fail every time. So you honor the ones that come before you, the Stuart Scotts, the Robin Robin Roberts, the Leahs, you honor those folks by the way you approach it day in and day out. And you attack it, and you attack it because if you make it about yourself, you're going to fall every time. And then you leave a legacy for the ones that come after you. The James Connors, the Bradarius Hams, 
the other ones that, gets, that got diagnosed this past year, even this past day. And you just try to approach it to where somebody can look at your story and look at you and say, man, you know what? I'm not a victim of circumstance. I'm not a victim of di a diagnosis. I can do it if I put my mind to it and I have a wonderful support system. So I'm not accepting this award for me. I'm, an accept I'm accepting it for all the fighters out there Regardless of what your circumstance is, regardless of what your diagnosis is, man, just keep pushing. And always remember, honor and legacy, baby. And you can push through it. Thank you. Now, honor and legacy, that's what he, that's what he brings up in there. And it's, that's an interesting one for me because I start thinking about it in terms of um, if, if, we, if we honor the, if we honor the, the memories, we honor the, the sacrifices of people who went ahead of us. You know, I mean, he's this is the I think this is the hallmark of a great inspirational speech. Now, I don't know if he wrote this himself or if he had somebody who sat down and wrote it for him, but it doesn't seem it seems pretty legit that mm -hmm. it's something kind of him speaking from the heart. And the hallmark of any great inspirational speech is that you can pull it out of what it was, what its intended audience was and make it inspiring on that topic. Right. And in this case, it feels pretty inspiring to me if you just move this over and instead of it being that for all those who are going to be fighting cancer, you honor the honor the people who went before you. In his case, he talks about Stuart Scott and and uh, and Robin Roberts, and and then he sure. talks about the people. You know these these other young players who have been diagnosed in the last uh, actually a couple of them I think or one of them that was diagnosed just in the last week. And if you take that instead and you make it okay, what are you fighting? Well, what you're fighting in in from one perspective is you're fighting institutional racism. You're you're fighting a a battle that says that your life, the, the, the impl implication being that your life doesn't matter and you're fighting that by saying, no, my life does matter. My group's life does matter. Mm -hmm. But then there's the other side of it that's fighting it saying, no, I, we don't think that you or your life matters. We right. think that there is something going on and systematically it needs to be addressed, but it needs to be addressed correctly and, from, and with the right heart. And the right, right heart to me is the individuals need to be, you know, the people, the, the group needs to be measured by its individuals. And I think that as Christians, you know, we, we see that a lot, you know, we, we're all created by the same maker. Right. And we, you know, and we, we need to approach problems with love. Your life matters. Let the, you know, let, let's yeah. fight the real fight instead of fighting and pointing fingers at each other over the symptoms. Well, and yeah, and 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 to, you know, obviously these these uh scenarios over, you know, black lives matters and and blue lives matter and all this and it, it's all it it's all very true, but the the origins of those things were so are so nuanced anyway, but it's it's very um you know, the black lives matter movement, it it that statement came came about um at a time when that was a message that was a message that went out to law enforcement, to government agencies. And really, you know, it, it it's misinterpreted by so many people who aren't, who, who don't and entirely know it. But what they were saying was our lives matter too. It's not just, it's not, you're not just protecting the white people and the white families and everyone else, but, but there's us too. Um, <clears throat> again, that was a powerful message. It was a powerful message that was great. I think the all lives matter came really just kind of out of a, um, it was a poor response. It was a counterpoint. That was it, and not even a counterpoint. It was it a, was, and, and not to make this all about that, but it was a, 
it was a group of politicians that didn't really know how to respond. And so they're like, well, all lives matter. So they, you know, not to offend any of their constituents. And right. and I, I think what I'm what I wanted to get at is, again, like we go back to the thing like it's it's good for us if we can learn from history. It's good for us to remember it. It's good for us to remember why these. Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, we could dig down deeper uh, as far as, you know, uh, Europeans coming to this new land of the United States that we know now and and all the tragedy that 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 came as a result of us being here. Um, yeah, we, you and I had nothing to do with that. Uh, we had nothing to do with the slavery that was in there, but we can learn from those things. We can learn from it, realize, yes, there was a thing. So I think where we go from where, where I, where I think is, is really worth spending some time kind of discussing this and, and for you out there to think about is, um, what do we do with that? And especially as people that, you know, are, are trying to live like Christ and trying to follow Jesus, um, and to trust Jesus, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us as a as a group of people? Where that is, I go back to, uh, and I'm, I'm getting ready to shut up, but I'll go back to the uh, my, my favorite one of my favorite scriptures is uh, in John chapter 13 and verse 34 and 35, where he says, "A new commandment I give to you: love one another." As I have loved you, so also must you love one another. And and then he goes into verse 35 and he says, and Jesus tells his disciples, "By this." All people will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. He didn't tell them that. He, he, he didn't say you have to you have to believe all the right things. He didn't tell them that, oh, you have to go do this many kind acts and services to all these things. He's talking about a genuine just love each other. This is the way that people know. This is the way that people know that God is doing something in you. Yeah, and, and just to make it clear, you were reading that. I was you, reading. You, you didn't just have that memorized. I was reading this. I, was I, I, read I pulled it up off the computer. Uh, <laughs> Pastor Dan is a walking Bible uh, commentary. I, I have to look it up still sometimes. I'm just you, a lowly music guy. You know, because when you hear somebody who who just whips out chapter and verse <laughs> on you and, and quotes it verbatim, you, you always kind of go, "Wow." I can it is a church podcast. I figure we could have scripture in there. Yeah, that's probably not a bad thing. Yeah. I can I can't even hardly quote chapter and verse if I am reading it. Right. So the I, I agree one hundred percent, and I think that there is a there is something that you know, and it, it, this could be where the church comes in, and I th- and we see that to an extent. Yeah. We're just not seeing it as widely as we need to. We still have we we do still have a a gulf between camps. And, yeah. you know, on the one side, it's like I said, you've got one group that's trying to slap handcuffs on the victims and another is trying right. to slap halos. And it's neither neither one of those are necessarily correct. Right. It has to be looked at individually. It has to be looked at realistically. And the um, you know, the truth of the matter is, you know, we as Christians, until we start until we until we start engaging people who are different than us. Um, a lot of times they say, you know, church is the, you know, the preaching to the choir thing. Well, that, that really holds water in pretty much every segment of, right. of our culture because you go to church with people who are like you. You go, to, you go to church with people who think like you. You get in groups with people who think like you. Right. And then you kind of end up in the echo chamber of thought. Yeah. And until we kind of break out of that and say, well, you know what? Um, it would be better for me if I went and experienced something culturally different than me yeah. in worship. Um, I've experienced a little, not nearly to the level that other people have, not even close, but in the, you know, in the, in the grand scheme, I've, I've experienced other cultures worship enough times to realize there's a lot of validity for what's happening there. 
And do I, is it how I want to worship every week? Is it how I want to worship every day? Not necessarily, but Mm -hmm. it also means that whenever I meet somebody and that's their style of worship, I can go, okay, yeah, yeah, all right. And that's a, I don't think that's a bad thing. Now this weekend, we've got an opportunity. Yeah. The, the, the Emoja experience. Funny we should mention all this. Yeah. Yeah. Funny segue. Um, The Emoja experience, intercultural worship. Yeah. Um, Again, it's going to be 3 p.m. on Sunday, July 17th. At Nima Community, Community Church down in Olathe, all right off of K7 uh, or Parker Road, I guess yeah. it is down there at that point. And um, who else is going to be there? It's going to be us, Nima Community Church, and uh, Rolling Hills Presbyterian. Rolling Church. Hills, I keep, I don't know Which why is, I want to keep uh, saying Ro- the They go one. by Rolling Hills Church, and they're in Overland Park. Okay. So it's going to be a, a big intercultural worship experience. There's going to be people yeah. of all races, or at least, you know, yeah. the people here in the, the Swahili congregation of Nima. Yes. And, um, and what you, it, well, it, it's Swahili, but it's not just Swahili. It is a, uh, they, they do some of their songs in that. I, I believe they'll do one. And I, I got to hear the worship leader at Nima. At Nima. Uh, he's a he's a young guy named Isaac, uh, brilliant musician and and singer songwriter, um, and he is um, he played one of his original songs. I didn't know anything I, until he told me the the psalm that it was found in. It's Psalm fifty one, but he uh, he he sings it all in Swahili, and it is just I was in tears. I mean, I just wow, this is this is heart wrenching right here, and the way that the, the emotion behind that uh, you you guys he's gonna do it. Sunday, and uh, I'm thankful to be able to just play a little guitar on it. But man, it's it's emotional, and it's uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, it should be uh, should be really good, and also be an opportunity to expand the boundaries and go out and and meet people that are yeah that worship in a different way. Oh, and, well, and Pastor David, so the uh, Pastor David Nzioka, the pastor there, uh, I was in, doing an interview with him last week, and he he talked about how he talked about the beginnings of that church and how it started out. Uh, and I'll, I'll let him kind of share that on, on Sunday. So don't miss that. But he, uh, he, he, when they began the church, he was a seminary student here and he started about the same time that Caw Prairie got started. And he talked about how he got here and was a, a ministry intern because he was a, he had been a pastor in Kenya for years, but then mm-hmm. he came here to go to seminary and uh, in Kansas. And while he was here, that's when he began to connect with some other people that happened to be from Kenya and some of the same, some, they knew some of the same churches uh, in the cities that they had come from. And they just began meeting as a small group. Like they just started meeting just six or seven people. And what started out there is they began connecting with other people from different parts of Africa who also happened to be studying here or happened to be here, you know, for their family had moved here for one reason, or they were in a military and happened to move here. And so those families got connected with other families. And now that church runs over 500 people. And uh, Kenya is just one country that's represented there. A lot of Eastern African uh, places, a lot of European, a lot of places that uh, South American, a lot is become a very multicultural experience just in a week. And so we're going to be connecting with a lot of different cultural groups. Yeah, that, that's really interesting because we, we see it as, okay, it's a different cultural experience, just Nima, but even within their culture, it's so even, even within that community, there's, you know, I mean, we, and that's right here in Kansas. I mean, yeah. it's really amazing. Yeah. We, we think of, you know, we think, well, it's, it's all African countries, but you know, then again, you get a person from Florida and a person from Kansas and a person from Texas and you've got three different cultures. So it's right. It's going to be interesting. Texas uh, is like four countries all on itself. I mean, yeah. So 
No, it's the Republic of Texas, man. <laughs> All right, so we're going to wrap up because uh, we've we've rambled on long enough. And, uh, you know, just we challenge everybody out there listening to, uh, you know, give us your thoughts. I mean, tell us tell us what you think. You know, connect with us. Um, you know, easiest way to connect with us right now is through email. Yeah. Uh, if you go to... Um, Go to your email. You can email us at podcast at callprairie.org. If you have any complaints, just send those to Sean S. At Co- I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. Yep, and I will forward those on to uh, Brian T. at uh, Call you. Prairie. And we'll make sure that uh, make sure that gets addressed. But, you know, we this is about dialogue, and this is about yeah. uh, about opening something up. So, um, you know, don't don't take my thoughts as as your own, and don't take, uh, you know, don't take Brian. I won't take Brian's thoughts as mine, and... And, um, you know, let us know what your thoughts are, because this is an important it's an important topic. And it's going to take more than uh, it's going to take more than me trying to do something, take more than Brian trying to do something or more than than the the Black Lives Matters protesters trying to do something. It's going to take all of us. But I think we can overcome this. We've I think so. We we can overcome a lot. And we uh, you know, I, we start loving people and we start truly, truly getting to the heart of what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we can get there. We absolutely can. Amen. All right. So that's going to do it for today's or this week's edition. I feel inspired. You feel inspired. Uh, that's going to do it for today's edition of Call Prairie Inside Out. Um, again, I'm Brian. I'm not Brian. I'm Sean. I'm Brian over here. He's Brian. <laughs> that was so funny. I was like already in my mind imagining what you were going to say. So, um, so I'm Sean. He's Brian. And uh, we are so proud to be here uh, delivering this to you. So hopefully we will see you on Sunday at uh, the Emoja Experience. So and here at 9 o'clock and 1045. Amen. So until next week, be good. 2006, the 31st of May, I lost my mother. It was the saddest day of my life, as you can understand. But you know what my mother told me in a dream that I had after that? She said, boy, you better get your ass up there and do what you need to do and spread your message of love to the people. Now let me know that she was okay. And so I just come here to say to all of you, I thank you for everything that you've done for my career, for all the joy that we have shared together, for all the successes that we've had, for the King Holiday Bill, for every single thing for everything that we have done together and all the people that through you supporting my music and my family I've been able to do wonderful things for I thank you for that and most of all I thank you for making it possible through you supporting me to give my mother a far better life than maybe she would have had I thank you I love you with all my heart I want you to know this use your heart to love somebody And if your heart is big enough, use your heart to love everybody. Until we get together again, I send you love from up above. God bless you.